five minutes long, that service, because I know some of you are going to be coming during lunch break and uh, lunch hour. So we want to give you time to get back to work on time. So uh, it's a wonderful service. And then on Resurrection Weekend on Saturday, uh, we will have a Saturday evening service at 6 o'clock and then our three Sunday mornings on the 27th at 8, 9, 30, and 11. All right? So we'll have flyers out. We'll have it in a bulletin this weekend. Um, those flyers that we put out, the assignment for you, and I don't ask very much from you guys, but I do ask that you would take them and that you would give them to somebody, all right? One of the things that uh, we know from um, studies, at least I read about it, is that um, those who are invited during the Easter season are more likely to come to church than at any other time during the year, Easter and then Christmas. So be sure to invite somebody, perhaps at work that you've been praying for, somebody you've been ministering to in your family or neighbor or somebody at school. And, and there's a number of services that they can come where they're going to hear the good news of the gospel and they're going to hear that Jesus is alive, he rose from the dead, and uh, he is the author of eternal life. So be praying about that, and we're going to uh, be advertising it on Grace FM, of course, and uh, we're looking forward to what the Lord's going to do. But tonight, we are in Psalm 116, so we want to uh, get into our study. As Father, we do thank you for the opportunity to be here tonight, and uh, we desire to hear from you, uh, to benefit from your word. And Lord, as we read these psalms, the, the Hallel psalms that were that were sung, that were read during the times of feast and uh, when God's people gathered. Lord, we want to, to also be blessed uh, by these words uh, that the psalmist write, inspired by God. And Lord, I pray that tonight that it would benefit us and bless us and, and Lord, help us to know you more. And what my prayer is, is that as we know you more, we would love you more. That we would love you more when we leave than when we came in. And just knowing that you are true and faithful and that you're good and your word is sure. So, Lord, we give you this time in the study of your word. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So Psalm 116 is going to be a thanksgiving of God's deliverance for the psalmist. The psalmist is in turmoil. The, the psalmist is very much being afflicted near death. And so he's going to be giving uh, thanksgiving to the Lord as he cries out, to God during this time. So we read that I love the Lord in verse 1 because he has heard my voice and my supplications. Because he has inclined his ear to me, therefore I will call upon him as long as I live. And so the psalmist here, he begins by, by calling out to the creator of the universe. And he lets us know that, that our creator, the true and the living God, is not too busy to hear us. And the implication here is this, that he desires for us to cry out to him. He, he has heard my voice and my supplication because he has inclined his ear to me. In other words, it's like the Lord, he's, he's wanting to listen. He, he's listening very carefully. He's concentrating to hear what it is that we are saying as we cry out to him. Now, for me, unfortunately, and I think it's true for a lot of us, that sometimes when people are talking with us or, or um, you know, saying something to us, we don't always concentrate. I know that uh, Sue once in a while will say, are you listening to me? Are you hearing me? You know, yeah, I, uh, you know, because I'm doing something else or thinking about something else. But the Lord isn't that way. He hears us. He, he inclines his ear to us. And I like that because 
when I find myself in difficult situations or being afflicted by a circumstance, I know that I can cry out to the Lord. And I know that the Lord, that he hears me. And I like what the psalmist, as he starts out, he says, I love the Lord because. And I think it's a good thing for us to say, I love you, Lord. I love the Lord because. And then start making a list. Why? Why do we love the Lord? Because of what he has done for us. As Jesus came and demonstrated his love for us, that while we were sinners, uh, Christ died for us. Because you have provided forgiveness. You have provided eternal life. I love you, Lord, because, and we can go down the list, and I think that's a good thing for us to do as Christians, to remember why we love the Lord. Because you're faithful, and you're good, and you're merciful and gracious. And that's what the psalmist is going to be saying as he continues here in verse 3. The pains of death surrounded me, and the pangs of Sheol laid hold of me, and I found trouble and sorrow. And then I called upon the name of the Lord. O Lord, I implore you, deliver my soul. And so the psalmist is near death, and he called out to the Lord, again, knowing that the Lord inclines his ear, that he can do that. He can give his desires to the Lord. He hears my voice and my supplications. Supplications is specific needs or specific, you know, requests that you have for the Lord. And as we know that he hears us, we know that we can call upon the name of the Lord as it was just as Peter, it reminds me here, the psalmist, he, he's, you know, surrounded the pains of death me and the pangs of Sheol lay hold of me. Sheol, uh, the, the very depths of, of Hades is the um, New Testament word, Sheol in the Old Testament. But here he is crying out to the Lord. Remember the story, as I know that I'm sure you're familiar with, with Peter and the disciples in a boat. And they're in a storm, and, and, and the winds are, are blowing against them. And all of a sudden, Jesus comes walking out on the water in the fourth watch, about 3 o'clock in the morning. And at first, they, they said, as they were very greatly afraid and terrified, it's a ghost. And, of course, they would think it's a ghost. I mean, if you were out in the middle of a lake at 3 in the morning and somebody came walking on the water, you would think it was a ghost, too. You, all of us would. And Jesus said, don't be afraid, it is I. And Peter, interesting, Peter is such an interesting guy because all of a sudden he says that if it's you, command me to walk on the water. And, and Jesus said, come on out, Peter. And Peter steps out of the boat, the only man besides Jesus to walk on water. And he's walking on the water, and all of a sudden he notices the waves crashing against him and the winds blowing against him. And, and all of a sudden he begins to sink and all he has time to do is cry out, Lord, save me. It reminds me of, of the psalmist here. Oh, Lord, I implore you, deliver my soul. And here's Peter, help me, Lord, as he's sinking. And the Lord grabs him, and he pulls Peter out of the water and plops him back into the boat. And he saved Peter. And I know that there are times in our lives where we feel like we're sinking, where all we have time to say is, Lord, help me. Lord, deliver me. Lord, I don't know what to do. And he hears our prayers, and he's so gracious is the Lord, verse 5, and righteous. Yes, our God is merciful. The Lord preserves the simple. I was brought low, and he saved me. Return to your rest, O my soul, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. 
So he is the one that preserves the simple. Now, when you read this word simple, for some, it might have a little bit of a derogatory term that when we say that he or she is a simple person, it's not saying that they're, you know, uh, a derogatory term of they're not smart, they're dumb, they're stupid. That's not what's being said here at all. But the simple here in the scriptures, as the psalmist is referring to the one, he preserves the simple. It's talking about the idea of one who humbles himself, dependent on the Lord, the one who knows that they need the Lord. And that's what you and I are to do. He preserves the simple, the one who comes along and says, Lord, I need you. I can't help myself. I can't get out of this situation. I need you right now. And he preserves the simple. And the Lord wants us to be ones that are simple in that we're humble before him and that we have a dependency upon him. And he desires for us to live a simple life. You know, I think the, that the best way to live is a simple life in trusting the Lord and dependency upon the Lord. I think a good definition of living a simple life is given to us in First Thessalonians as Paul would write to them and he said, hey, you know what? Lead a quiet life, work with your hands, and mind your own business. I think that's a good word of advice for all of us, isn't it? Hey, hey, work with your hands, because he's going to be dealing with those who are not doing that and taking advantage of people. He said, mind your own business and, and lead a quiet life. We need to leave a, live a life that we're dependent upon the Lord and humble before him. And that we are content where the Lord has us. So here the psalmist is he's saying, hey, that return to your rest, verse 7, O my soul, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. Who's that remind you? Return to your rest. Of course, Jesus. He is our rest. And he was on that hillside in Galilee, as Matthew's narrative records. And he would cry out to the people, come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come and learn of me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. And take my yoke upon you, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Yoke yourself to me. That is, you yoke yourself to me and, and travel with me and know that my burden is light. You see, we don't want to yoke ourselves with the world. We don't want to be under the burden of the world because the burden of the world and other people is very, very heavy. And the Lord desires for us to come to him and that's where we're going to find rest. So are you here tonight and you're just weary? You're tired of the circumstance or the problems or the difficulties or the, the heartache that you're going through. You're tired and you're weary. Go to the Lord. He is your rest. And he desires to give you rest in your soul, even as the psalmist is saying that. Return to your rest, O my soul. For Verse 8, you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, and my feet from falling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I believe, therefore I spoke. I am greatly afflicted. I said in my haste, all men are liars. So here, as he continues the psalmist, speaking of God is gracious and merciful, and because of that, the psalmist we're going to see is no longer showing that anxiousness because we can bring everything to him. He inclines his ears to us. He hears us. He's the one that delivers our soul and gives rest to our soul. He's grace, gracious and merciful. But I want to draw attention to verse 10. I believe, therefore, I spoke. And the reason that I do, because it may be familiar to you, for those of you who have studied and read 2 Corinthians in chapter 4, verse 13, Paul in that chapter borrows from the psalmist here. 
and he quotes this verse. And in quoting this verse, he, he is talking in that chapter about affliction, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians, Paul begins that epistle by saying that when we came to you, first came to you, he's writing to the Corinthian church. He, he's writing from Macedonia, from Philippi. He had just left Ephesus on his third missionary journey where he made his base of operation, and the whole city rioted against Paul, the silversmiths. You remember Acts chapter 19? And it was Paul that was forced to leave. And when he's there writing to the Corinthian church, he's writing to them because the Corinthian church, even though it was a large church, when Paul first went there on his second missionary journey, he was there for a year and a half and the church exploded. And the church was huge. And, and, and it was very dynamic. But here's something about the Corinthian believers. They always kind of held Paul out at arm's length. And the Corinthians that were so deeply embedded in, in Greek, you know, uh, way of life and, and, uh, and philosophy and stuff, they, they struggled in that. They struggled in carnality, and they struggled in just, you know, receiving those who came in humility. Paul said that, hey, I came to you in much fear and trembling. I didn't come with persuasive words. Remember chapter 1 and chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians? You know how I came to you. I came to you humbled. I came to you as a beat-up missionary. He had been beaten in Philippi and run out of Thessalonica, mocked at Athens. And he comes into Corinth, and he says, I didn't come in the wisdom of man, but I came in the power and demonstration of the Holy Spirit, speaking nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. So he stayed there for a year and a half. The church is growing. He would leave. And then as he's writing his second letter to them, what had happened during that time that he was there in Ephesus on that third missionary journey is the Corinthian believers were receiving these guys that would call themselves most eminent apostles. Or in other words, super apostles and prophets. And they came in and they were well-dressed and they were well-versed and they had great oratory skill, and they would promote themselves, and the Corinthians just received them. And Paul is dealing with those, those super apostles, as they call themselves, and prophets, which, by the way, he would go on to say in 1 Corinthians uh, that they are false apostles. He would say that they are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness, whose end will be according to their works." So here's the thing to remember about, you know, those who come along with finesse and, and all of this and for show. We got to be careful, and we want to make sure that we're listening what they're saying. And they were ruling over the Corinthian believers with a heavy hand, and they were saying, don't receive Paul. Don't receive him. Look, he just wears these sweaty, tent-making clothes. His speech is contemptible, and, and he, you know, he, Paul is talking about his ministry to the Corinthian church. And he's pouring out his heart in a very personal and deep way, more than any other epistle that we have that he wrote in the New Testament. And he's writing about his ministry, how he came to them. And he, he didn't take anything from them. And in chapter 1, he starts by saying, you know that when we came to you from Asia, that we were pressed beyond measure, even the spirit of life. But the God 
and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the God of all comfort who comforts us in all our tribulations. And he goes on and he talks about his ministry, how he came to them, bringing the gospel, not taking anything from, their, from them, not you know, wanting to put on a show. And in chapter 4, he continues to talk about his ministry. He says, For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For it is God who commanded light to shine out of the darkness, who has shone in our hearts to give the light to the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He's saying that when we came to you, we didn't come preaching ourselves. We weren't exalting ourselves. We weren't trying to take from you. We didn't profit anything from you. We came with the simplicity of the gospel, for it is God who's commanded light to shine out of the darkness, whose light shines in our hearts. Remember Colossians, that Paul, he was writing to them. And in Colossians, he says, here's the mystery, that Christ in you, the hope of glory. And then Paul begins to write about how they were afflicted and how that light that was in them, Christ in them, that how it would be manifested. You see, we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellence of the power may be of God, uh, not of us. We were hard-pressed. We were crushed. We were persecuted. We went through all this, but we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our flesh. And he begins to just talk about that, and then he says, And since we have the same spirit of faith according to what is written, I believe, therefore I spoke. In other words, what Paul was saying is this, that as he borrows from the psalmist here in Psalm 116, who's talking about his affliction, that he's near death, pressed beyond you know, measure himself, as he's talking about how he's been afflicted, he would say, the psalmist, that I believe and therefore I spoke, just as Paul in his affliction borrows that, saying, I have faith that the Lord is working because we are this, this, this earthen vessel that has a treasure in it. We have this treasure in earthen vessels. An earthen vessel is what? Just a, a pot, a clay pot. And this clay pot, you and me, we have this treasure, don't we? This treasure Christ in us, the light of Jesus Christ that dwells in our hearts, the Holy Spirit that dwells in our hearts. We have this treasure, it's the Lord, that is in this clay pot. And that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. In other words, that as we go through life, us, us earthen vessels, and Christ is in us, that even in the afflictions that we go through and the difficulties as we're hard-pressed and pressed down and, and as we are ones that are persecuted, as we seem like we're being crushed, that the glory of God and the light of God is manifested through that. It reminds me so much of the story in the book of Judges. You know it. Gideon. Gideon, he was pretty simple. And here is Gideon. He's the least in his family. His family is the least of his tribe, and his tribe is the least of all the 12 tribes of Israel. 
Here is Gideon, who is the least of the least of the least. And the Lord comes to him and says, Gideon, mighty man of valor, I'm going to use you to free the children of Israel from the Midianites. You see, the Midianites had come in, and they had held the children of Israel in bondage and stole their food and, and ran them out of their cities to where the people were living up in the hills there of Samaria. And here's Gideon. He's in the hills threshing wheat. And all of a sudden, the angel of the Lord shows up and says, Gideon, I'm going to use you, the least of the least of the least, the one who is simple, and I'm going to use you to free the children of Israel from the mighty Midianites. They had a secret weapon that was called the camel. And they would come in with their camels, and they would take the crops and the harvest and steal them and take them back. And the camels could travel at you know, fast speeds and long distances without much water. And so here the children of Israel, they were in fear. They were out of their homes. And Gideon, I'm going to use you so you blow the trumpet. And Gideon blew the trumpet. You're going to go to battle against 135,000 Midianites. Gideon blows that trumpet. 32,000 men come from the hills. And the Lord says, too many men, Gideon. Too many men. Because when you get to victory, I don't want you to get the glory. So you tell whoever wants to go home that they can go home. So that's what he does. He says, whoever wants to go home, you can go home. And so most of the guys end up going home. Matter of fact, I think it's 22,000 that ended up putting their tails between their legs, and they headed back to the hills. That left 10,000. 10,000 against 135,000 Midianites? And the Lord says, Gideon, you got too many. Because when you get to victory, I don't want you to get the glory. So you tell the guys, go down to the brook there, get a drink of water, and whoever cups their hand and drinks from the water, that's who I'm going to use to defeat the 135,000 Midianites. And I imagine Gideon standing there, and all of a sudden now 10,000, only 300 cup the water. So 9,700 are dismissed. You dismiss them. 300 against 135,000 Midianites. Here's where it gets interesting. Gideon, this is what you do. You get these clay pots. You put hot coals in them. You surround the, the Midianites. And so those 300 guys huff and puff up around the, the hills there, and they surround the Midianites in their camps. And you're going to blow the trumpet. And when the blunt trumpet is sounded, then you're going to break those clay pots. And the wind rushing into those clay pots are going to ignite the coals. And all of a sudden, light is going to come forth. And that's what they did. And as light came forth from those broken earthen vessels, there was a great victory. And God got the glory. You know how his light and his glory is going to be manifested? Through your brokenness. Through the times that you're being afflicted for the Lord. And that's what Paul is saying we were pressed on every side. We were crushed. We were pressed beyond measure, even despaired of life. We didn't take from you. Matter of fact, Paul says, the more that I love you guys, the less I am loved by you. We're not ones that are ruling over you with a heavy hand. We didn't take anything from you. But what we came is preaching Jesus Christ and him crucified. And even though we are going through this affliction, we know this. Here's the truth. Here's the thing, as Paul would write, I believe and therefore I spoke, that we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellence of the power may be a God and not of us. The focus isn't on 
the earthen vessel, the clay pots. They were very common. They were just very plain. And it's not trying to polish up the clay pot, the container. It's not trying to be more religious or I'm going to work so much harder and I'm going to strain and strive. It's just being humbled before the Lord and depending on Him. And when you go through those times of difficulties, know this, that in your brokenness, that the Lord's light and glory is going to be manifested through you. And I know that some of you here, that you have gone through loss and you've gone through difficulties and you've gone through trials and you've gone through affliction and I have seen God's light shine through you and I've seen God's glory being manifested because you've depended upon the Lord. And the Lord's getting the glory and you might be saying, yes, Pastor Jeff, but it just hurts so much. And I know it does. But God's getting the glory and he's working through you and in you. So here the psalmist is saying, hey, you know, I was near death. And verse 10, I believe, therefore I spoke. I'm greatly afflicted. I said in my haste, all men are liars. And what shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits towards me? And I will take up the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. And I will pay my vows to the Lord now in the presence of all his people. So again, after we see that the psalmist is delivered, he expresses his gratitude to the Lord. He's wanting to, to give to him. And we see that verse 15, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. It hurts when we have a loved one that, that passes away. We grieve. There's a sting that's in death. That's why Paul said, where is thy sting, O death? In 1 Corinthians chapter 15. But I hope that we keep that eternal perspective that underneath the hurt and the loss and the grieving and the sadness that we would remember God's perspective that precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Because you see, this isn't our home. We're just passing through. That when a believer dies, it's precious in the sight of the Lord because the Lord is bringing them home. And even though we will go through sorrow and even though we go through grief and sadness, that one day we're all going to be together and we're going to say, yes, Lord, truly precious is the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints and righteous and true are your judgments, your decisions. And one day we're all going to be together. We're going to be with the, the Lord for all eternity. And, O oh Lord, verse 16, truly I am your servant. I am your servant, the son of your maidservant. You have loosed my bonds. I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving, and I will call upon the name of the Lord. And so not only are we being told in the book of Psalms all throughout that we're to give a sacrifice of praise, but let's not forget that we are to give a sacrifice of thanksgiving, as he says here, that I'll offer to you a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Verse 17, I will call upon the name of the Lord. Luke chapter 17. Ten lepers that, that Jesus calls out to as he saw them. They were near a village. They, they, they call out to Jesus. He says, hey, you go and present yourself to the priests in Jerusalem. Now, here's the interesting thing. As you go through the Old Testament, you go into Leviticus chapters 13 and 14. Leviticus chapter 13 talks about how the priests were to inspect somebody to see if they had leprosy. 
chapter 14 talks about if they are cleansed of that leprosy, what they would do is they would isolate them. They would put them outside the camp, and then they would be inspected. And if they were healed, they would go through this, this religious you know, ceremony, the priests and cleansing ceremony and sacrifices and all that. That's Leviticus chapter 14. Now, we know in the Old Testament, we don't see the priests ever doing that. We do see that Moses' sister in the book of Numbers, Miriam was struck with leprosy because she spoke against Moses. So the Lord struck her with leprosy. She was isolated for seven days and then brought back into the camp. So you assume that perhaps the priests at that time would go through the cleansing ceremony of Leviticus chapter 14. But for 1,500 years, there's no record of them ever doing that in the Old Testament. The only other person that received healing from leprosy that we know of is who? Naaman. He was a Gentile. This Syrian general that came had leprosy, and he had a servant girl that was from Israel and said, hey, go see the, the prophet. He, he'll heal you. And so Naaman goes to Israel. He goes to Elijah. Elijah says, dip in the Jordan River seven times, and you'll be cleansed. And he He was, and he came up, and he came up believing. So Naaman wouldn't go to Jerusalem to receive the cleansing ceremony. So here's the thing. You guys present yourself to the priest. All of a sudden, Jesus comes on the scene. He's healing those with leprosy. They're showing up in Jerusalem, and the priests are going, what? You had leprosy? And I'm sure they're, you know, going through the pages going, we got to brush up on Leviticus 14, you know? We got to brush up on, you know, what we need to do because we haven't done this for 1,500 years. So all of a sudden, they're hearing of healing as being done. These guys are being cleansed of leprosy. It was a horrible disease. It was a disease that would eat away at your skin and eventually eat away at your fingers and in your nose and your toes and your ears. You would have this terrible stench. Your skin would ooze and have sores. You were isolated. You couldn't go into the villages. You couldn't see your family. You couldn't go to synagogue to worship. You couldn't go to the temple to bring a sacrifice. You were ostracized from society, completely isolated. That's why these guys are crying out to Jesus from a distance. There's one man that came to Jesus, and he said, Cleanse me. Help me, Lord, if you're willing. And Jesus reached out with his hand. He said, I'm willing. And immediately it says that man was healed of leprosy. Leprosy is a picture of sin in the Old Testament. And all of us, we've been struck with leprosy. But we've come to Christ who has brought healing to us as we've come in faith. And we've been forgiven. But maybe there's an area of your life where it's eaten away at you. And maybe there's a situation or a problem or a struggle or a sin that is just really getting at you and you feel isolated. You feel alone. And what you're to do is to do what the psalmist did, is cry out to the Lord, do what those guys did, and know this, that he is willing. 
And with those hands, Jesus reached down and touched that man, it says. And Luke is very, very careful to say that it was Jesus that reached out with his hand, Dr. Luke, and touched that man. And you see, Jesus didn't have to touch him. He could have just spoken that man would have been healed. But with those compassionate hands of Jesus, he touched that man and healed him. And they're the same hands that would allow Spike to be driven through his hands and his feet so that we can be healed of leprosy of sin. And also he desires to do a work in your life to heal you from the power of sin. I don't know what struggle you may have, but our God is big enough to help you and to bring healing and to strengthen you and to help you. So the psalmist is giving a a praise of thanksgiving, Luke chapter 17, back to the text that I was talking about. Only one came back out of the ten to give thanks to the Lord. The Lord says, where are the other nine? I hope that we are learning as we go through the scriptures to have a thankful heart for what he has done. We have so much to be thankful for, even in the midst of the difficulties that we go through, because we have Jesus, and his promises are true for us, and he desires to work on behalf of us. So we're to give a sacrifice of praise unto him, and a sacrifice of thanksgiving is what he says. And then verse 18, I will pay my vows to the Lord now in the presence of all his people in the courts of the Lord's house. In the midst of you, O Jerusalem, praise the Lord. Psalm 117, shortest chapter in all the Bible, only two verses long. Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Laud him, all you peoples. For his merciful kindness is great towards us, and the truth of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. So the shortest of the 150 psalms, the shortest chapter in all of the Bible. But it's a powerful psalm because it's an invitation to everyone to turn to the Lord and to praise the Lord. Praise God for his merciful kindness, which speaks of loving kindness. And of course, Lamentations chapter 3, verse 22, it tells us that it's the Lord's loving kindness that we are not consumed. And then the psalm begins with and ends with a call to praise the Lord in these two verses. And that's something that every believer, all of us, every day should do. And the first word for praise here in the Hebrew is halal, which means hallelujah. Now, the second praise here at the end of verse 2, at the end of the psalm, is another Hebrew word, shavah, which means to boast, to exult, to laud. It's like when we praise God, we're bragging on him, to exalt him. Now, a couple of things here. Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, which would be unusual to say in Israel at this time, wouldn't it? You see, Israel, God's people, were to be a light to the other nations, to the world. And what happened was, over time, they turned inwardly and didn't realize that God wanted the Gentiles to come to him. The early church was really dealing with that problem that they came to realize that this thing called salvation, this thing called the church, is going to consist of Jews and Gentiles. So we see that Paul writes about that. In the book of Acts, they had discussions about that as well. And it's interesting here, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, that God was going to include the Gentiles in this thing called salvation. And then his truth endures forever, as it says in verse 2. Always remember that that his truth endures forever. Because what you're going to hear today from some is that the Word of God is evolving. That's a new trend. That's a new wording that you hear. 
oh, the Word of God is evolving, and it's evolving so we can involve it to make it fit what society says in the acceptance of sin. The Word of God is sure. It is true. It is truth that the Lord endures forever. It doesn't change. So we need to remember that. So Psalm 117, Psalm 118, I don't know if you know this, but Psalm 117, we're halfway through the Bible. There's, I believe, 1,188 chapters in all of the Bible, and we just covered half of it, 594 chapters. So we got 594 to go as we start Psalm 118. Psalm 118, in between the shortest chapter of the Bible, Psalm 117, and the longest chapter of the Bible, Psalm 119. And it is believed that Psalm 118 was written during the time of Nehemiah as he would come back after the captivity to rebuild the wall and the gates around Jerusalem. So Psalm 118, as we read it, the psalmist writes, O give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. Let Israel now say, His mercy endures forever. And let the house of Aaron now say, His mercy endures forever. And let those who fear the Lord now say, His mercy endures forever. So may we here at Calvary Chapel say what? His mercy endures forever. Amen. In verse 5, I called on the Lord in distress. The Lord answered me and set me in a broad place. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is for me among those who help me. Therefore, I shall see my desire on those who hate me. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in princes. So here in the middle of the Bible, as we know that there's 1,188 chapters in Psalm 118, verse 8, that is worth underlining and remembering that it's better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. I pray that we would remember that for our nations. You know, we're going to hear a lot as we're in an election year. Yesterday was Super Tuesday. I know that the elections are important. We need to be involved as, as Christians in the, in the process of electing our leaders. I think it's a very important that we're up on you know, what's going on and the candidates and everything. But I do want to say this. Our hope is not in the next election. Our ultimate hope is in Jesus Christ. And we need to be praying for our nation. It's like David said, some trust in horses and some in chariots, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. We like to say, God bless America. Well, God has blessed our nation, hasn't he? And yet we're getting further away from the Lord. And I'll just tell you my personal opinion. And I don't talk politics behind the pulpit. I like to talk Jesus, but I am very concerned. And I am very concerned in what I'm seeing and what I am hearing and the trend of our nation spiritually, morally. And we need to be praying. And we need to be trusting in the Lord. And that needs to be the message of the Christians that our hope is in Jesus Christ. And that as a nation, we need to repent and turn back to him because he has blessed us. And righteousness exalts a nation and blesses a nation that makes the Lord their God. But yet we're pushing him away. And we know what happens to a nation 
to leadership when they don't trust the Lord. We need to trust in Him. You know, Second Chronicles chapter 25 is an interesting chapter that, that it's a story of uh, the king of, of Judah at that time. His name was Amaziah. And it tells us that Amaziah, when he became king, that, that he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, but not with a loyal heart. And when you first read that, you think, what do you mean he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, but not with a loyal heart? Well, here's what happened. You read the chapter of chapter 25, and you see Amaziah, he wants to go to war against the Edomites. So he gathers a bunch of troops from Judah, but then he hires 100,000 men from the house of Israel, from Ephraim. And he pays them a bunch of, of silver and gold, you know. He pays them off. And the prophet of God comes to Amaziah and says, listen, you need to trust in the Lord. God is powerful enough to deliver, you know, the Edomites into your hands. You don't need the house of Ephraim, who has done wickedly against the Lord. You need to send them back and trust in the Lord. So reluctantly, Amaziah, he does that. He says, well, he already paid these guys off. He said, the Lord will pay you much more. Let him take the money and go home. So it is Amaziah that says, listen, you 100,000 guys from the house of Israel, I don't need you. Go on home. Well, these guys are upset. You would think they would take the money and be happy, and we just got paid for doing nothing. But you see, it wasn't that way. They wanted the spoils of the Edomites. They wanted to get much more. They're upset. So here is Amaziah with his troops from Judah. They're down by the Dead Sea. And these 100,000 guys go through the cities of Judah, and they plunder the cities, tear the cities up. And Amaziah can't do anything about it. He goes to war against the Edomites. He defeats the Edomites. He's actually very brutal. And he does something very, very foolish. He did what was right in the sight of the Lord initially, but what he does is he takes the gods as he's coming back of the Edomites, he sets them up, and he bows down to them, and he begins to burn incense to them. And the prophet of God comes to him and says, Amaziah, what are you doing? You're trusting in these idols that couldn't even deliver their own people. Why are you bound down to them? It's the Lord that brought you victory. And Amaziah got very upset and he got very mad. And, and he says, who made you the king's counselor? How dare you speak against me? Oh, I'm going to put you to death. The prophet says, okay, but you're going to be destroyed. So Amaziah comes back. He's upset at the house of Israel. He sends word to Joash, the king of the house, the ten northern tribes. He says, let's go to war. And so Joash sends a message back to him and says, listen, enjoy your victory over the Edomites, but don't meddle to your own hurt. Don't meddle to your own hurt. So Amaziah ignores it. He goes to war against the house of Israel. He gets his clock cleaned. He gets defeated. They come down into Jerusalem. They break through the walls. They take some of the treasuries and the gold and stuff away from the house of the Lord. And the people were so upset at Amaziah, what he had done, they end up killing him. Nice life, Amaziah. He trusted in himself. He trusted in others. I'll hire these 100,000 guys. They'll help me. And the Lord said, listen, they're not right with me. They're, it's not right for you to do this. You need to trust in me. And that's what he had told the children of Israel that if you trust in me, I'll deliver you from the enemy. 
And he ends up putting his trust in idols. And he ends up putting trust in himself and his own strength. And he ends up meddling to his own hurt. We need to be careful that we have a loyal heart towards the Lord. And that we're not trusting in our own strength, in our own abilities, in our own togetherness. But we are going to trust in the Lord. And that we're not meddling to our own hurt. That we're not turning to other things to trust in. And we're not trusting in that which can be no help to us. The Lord is our ultimate help. I understand that there are those that are out there to help us and be a benefit to us, but ultimately we trust in the Lord. And that is true for our nation. That is true for this church. You know what I think the greatest danger to Calvary Chapel Greeley is? Is when we get complacent and we start trusting in numbers, we start trusting in budgets, we start trusting in in all of those things, rather than our ultimate trust is in you, Lord. And we don't want to do anything without you, Lord, and we want to seek you and we want to please you. And we're going to trust in you and not in man. We're not going to trust in our money. We're not going to trust in buildings. We're not going to trust in all that. We're going to trust in you alone. Amen? So we need to be careful. And that's what the psalmist here in Psalm 118 is saying, that, you know what? Here in the middle of the Bible, good advice. Better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. In verse 10, the nations surrounded me, and in the name of the Lord, I will destroy them. They surrounded me, yes, they surrounded me, but in the name of the Lord, I will destroy them. So we see here that the psalmist is saying he's going to trust in the Lord. And remember that the name of the Lord isn't some incantation that we say, a magic spell that we get what we want. Sometimes I kind of get that from those who say, in the name of Jesus, you know, and, and kind of like it's magic words. And it's trusting in him personally. It's trusting in him and who he is and that I have a personal relationship with him. Acts chapter 19. Remember the sons of Sceva? That here are these guys. They're, they're seeing Paul, you know, cast demons out of of others, So they're casting, trying to demons out of others. And the sons of Skevens are going around and they, they come with this guy that's demon-possessed, has these demons or whatever. And, and they said, you know, we exercise you in the name of Jesus. And the demon said, Jesus we know and Paul we know, but who are you? And, and the demon jumped out and walloped these guys and beat them up and all of this. The question is, Are you in Christ? And that's what's going to help us in our distress. So they surrounded me like bees, verse 12. They were quenched like a fire of thorns. In the name of the Lord, I will destroy them. They pushed me violently that I might fall, but the Lord helped me, and the Lord is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. The voice of rejoicing and salvation is the tent of the righteous, and the right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord is exalted. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I shall not die but live and declare the works of the Lord. The Lord has chastened me severely, but he has not given me over to death. So here we see that the psalmist is just a voice of rejoicing and salvation. And that's what we should do. Fill our hearts and our homes with worship, with joy and praise. Not just for our families, but for anybody that comes. This house be filled with the praise and joy of the Lord. And then the psalmist talks about in verse 18, he's chasing me severely. They had just come out back from the captivity of, of Babylon, 
And we need to remember that the chastening of the Lord is because he loves us, as Hebrew chapter 12 declares. He does this to get us back on track. And in verse 19, open to me the gates of righteousness, and I will go through them, and I will praise the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord through which the righteous shall enter. And I will praise you, for you have answered me and have become my salvation. And the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And this was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made, and we will rejoice and be glad in it. The stone, verse 22, which the builders rejected, has become the chief cornerstone. Is speaking of who? Jesus, of course. You know that this was also mentioned by Jesus in Mark chapter 12 as he would tell the religious leaders of the parable, the wicked vine dresser, that as he told that story, he said, the wicked vine dressers are you guys. You have rejected the owner's son. You killed him. And I am the stone which the builders have rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And then the apostles would say to the religious council in Acts chapter 4. And then Peter, when he's talking to those Christians in 1 Peter, he's talking to them that are going through difficulties and hardship. And he says to them that, hey, remember this? You who are dispersed and going through difficulties, that you have a privileged status. You are living stones being fitted together. And particularly those Jewish believers there in the first century, they needed to be reminded of that because they would look at the temple in Jerusalem and they would say, oh, we missed the temple. We missed the the ceremonies and and the celebrations and the feast. And here Peter is saying, listen, God has built something even better, another temple that are living stones being fitted together. And he quotes from here and he says, Jesus is the chief cornerstone upon which everything else aligns where there's strength and stability. He is your chief cornerstone, and you are being fitted together to make a holy habitation unto the Lord. Living stones, that's you and me. And God is doing a wonderful work in this place, amen? And he wants to continue, and we're being fitted together, and what a privilege for us to be here in these latter days, to be able to minister to this generation, to be a light in the darkness, but just as it was in Peter's day and just as it was here in this day when Nehemiah came back and there was difficulties. Just as it is and always has been that through the difficulties, something marvelous is happening. A holy habitation is coming together. God's building his church. And you and I, living stones, and you and I, earthen vessels, the light and glory of God is being manifested. So, Father, we thank you. We thank you so much for these psalms to remind us of these glorious truths. And, Lord, that you're working even in the midst of the hardship and the difficulties. And so, Father, I pray that as we come right now to the communion table, the communion table for us who are believers, that we come and we take of the elements to remember that Jesus allowed his body to be broken and his blood shed for forgiveness of sin in this new covenant. And I want to invite anyone that if you've never surrendered your life to Jesus, that Jesus came and died for you and he rose again. He is your salvation and hope. And the invitation, just as he gave on that hillside of Galilee, is come to me, that he says that tonight, if you've never done that, to know him personally, to be forgiven 
and to have relationship with the true and living God in the hope of heaven. It comes by putting your faith and trust in him. Don't put your faith and trust in the world or yourself, but in him alone who died for you and loves you. Call upon his name.